Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Strategic Business Advisor. Today, we talk to Chalmers Brothers. He's a nationally recognized corporate trainer, executive coach, and author of several books. Let's get into it with Chalmers. So, hi, Chalmers. Welcome to the Strategic Business Advisors podcast. I'm glad you could make it. Been looking forward to this uh, this conversation. I have as well, Carrie. Thank you very much. You know, you and I go back many, many years. I just celebrated my 35th anniversary with Betsy. I know we met way back in the 80s, I think. So it's been wonderful to, to stay in touch and looking forward to it. Thanks. It, it's been a while. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so look, let's, let's just get into this conversation. I have a few questions, but feel free to talk about whatever you want. You're, you're a corporate trainer. You're an executive coach. You're a keynote speaker. You've done TED Talk. You've written two books. In fact, I was noticing that your books are being used at Georgetown University, George Mason University, Harley Davidson Motor Company, or Newfield Networks even using it, the NASA Goddard Space Station. I know Mike Papania uses it for all of his trainings. I love the book myself. I've probably given away 20, recommended a lot to people. You know, like if you really want to just some basic, easy to understand distinctions on how to be more effective in language, which will have you more effective in life, read the book. It, it's not woo-woo, it's not whatever, it's not philosophical, it's not hard to understand. It's, it's basic, you know, brass tacks to me. Anyway, uh, and I remember when I was going through all the, the ontolog ontological training or the ontology of language training, I was man, somebody needs to write a book, somebody needs a book, and then you did. <laughs> very, it's very interesting. I spent, well, the way I got started, right? I was doing programs based on everything I learned at Education for Living and Newfield, right? started doing programs, programs, and gradually people would start to say, where can I get a book about this stuff? And my yeah. response always was, well, there is no book. I learned this from different papers and different programs and different courses and all. And I mean it. At some point, one person too many said, well, why don't you write the book? And I, I mean this. My internal narrative was, I'm not smart enough to write a book. And number two, the people who taught me should write the book. I'm a practitioner. I'm sharing what I got taught. And finally, I had this realization, the cobbler has no shoes. I'm in the business of helping people move past unpowerful beliefs. And I apparently was the only person who thought I could not write that book. And so it was a, uh, a wonderful realization and it's been hard with the reception it's gotten. And it's just been a, a wonderful journey. It really has been. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, I've, I've seen some of your client lists like Coca-Cola, Harley Davidson. I, I, I don't even know them all, but I mean, you, you've, You've worked with some big international global corporations. Have you worked with many small to mid-sized companies? Actually, I really have. In fact, most of my clients are not the big marquee names. I've had mostly mid-sized clients. You know, I've been a speaker on the Vistage uh, circuit for 23 years. And Vistage is a worldwide association of CEOs. And they cool. meet monthly. They meet monthly not for networking, but to help each other grow. Right? It's a powerful peer group organization and I invite anybody here watching or listening that is a business owner or executive if you're looking for a powerful peer group experience check out Vistage v-i-s-t-a-g-e.com and I've been a speaker for 23 years for these organizations and almost all of them carry are between five and five hundred million dollars in revenue right and and, and they're so it's not normally the big coca-colas and general motors but it's not the mom and pop pizza place either right it's Right. It's enough organizational size and scale uh, where they are experiencing some communication difficulties, right? Some relationship difficulties. And, and I've been fortunate to meet a lot of the executives through Vistage, and they bring me into their organization to do some work internally. 
So my first question is, since you've, you've dealt with a ton of businesses, business owners, business leaders, I mean, from small to global, right? Is there a common theme? Is there a common something that they're looking for for their businesses? And I guess a different way to say it is, is there something that's missing for them that's kind of common throughout? Or is it pretty diverse? It's interesting, Kerry. Uh, number one, I never got, I never get brought in to, to help anybody unless there's something not working great, right? In some way, shape, or form, if things are going great, they don't need a guy like me. It almost always has to do with how do they work together? It's almost always teamwork. It's there's a, a leadership guru out there named Tom Peters, and he's written a whole score of books, and he's very well known. And one of my friends went to one of his conferences last year. So Tom Peters gets up there and says, listen, everybody, I've written 19 books. You don't need to read any of them. He said, what you need is six words. People are like, shit, okay, what are the six words? He said, hard is soft, and soft is hard. What historically... Hard is soft and soft is hard. What historically we have thought of as the hard skills, right? The functional and technical skills are not that hard. In fact, most organizations are very well equipped to build those skills and capacities inside the organizations. And most universities and most training programs are pretty good at building those skills as well. Right. What we have traditionally thought of as the soft skills. Now we're talking conversational, relational and emotional competencies. These historically are much more difficult for organizations to build internally, as most of them do not have anything remotely resembling a robust internal leadership development program, right? Many people get promoted because they excel at a functional or technical skill. And for the same reason that the best mechanic in the garage doesn't always make the best garage manager, right? The skills and competencies needed to be successful in a functional or technical role are not the same skills and competencies needed to be successful in leadership. So the common, the common symptom or the common reason I get called in almost always has to do, they always know their product, they know their market. There's not a lack of functional or technical know-how. It's a difficulties coordinating and working together. It has, it's always coming down to communications, to conversations, to doing things collaboratively. And I think also, Terry, even in pretty small companies, there's been a dramatic increase in the use of teams, right? So organizationally, the landscape is much less, obviously, command and control in terms of leadership orientation. And there's much more reliance on informal networks, more horizontal dotted line relationships organizationally. And so conversations and communications and relationships and working together and teamwork and collaborative execution are just more important, are just more right. important. So it's always around that. Okay, so, so if working together, coordination of actions, and I don't know if you've, I don't know if you heard this, but I'm guessing you have. Huda Olala, who I know you cited under, I cited under, he yep. said, he was talking about businesses and of course called business power and strategy. His big claim was that businesses are a network of conversations. And if you don't have some kind of, what's the word I'm looking for, documented system, you don't have some way for these, the different pieces of the business to coordinate action, the conversations get all disoriented or whatever, dysfunctional, I guess, at best. And the, the, the uncoordinated conversations causes dysfunction in the organization. And next thing you know, you're having turf wars and 
production delays and employee problems and, you know, everything you've probably seen and more. You're right on. In fact, you know, we studied in, in the same programs, right? And so that model I still use explicitly. And the notion is when you look deeply at any organization, I'm talking General Motors, Coca-Cola, my wife's medical practice, the neighborhood pizza joint down the street. When you look deeply at any organization, what you're going to see at the core, no matter how simple or complex, that company can be understood as a network of interdependent commitments, people making and managing promises. Human beings inside an organization coordinate action all day, every day, but they don't coordinate action with magic. They coordinate action with specific types of conversations called promises, commitments, or agreements. I use those words interchangeably, right? And the way we dance with promises, commitments, and agreements has predictable impacts on two giant types of results. One's quantitative and one's qualitative. On the quantitative side, it impacts productivity, right? The actual way, are we able to meet the deadlines we need to meet, get the things done that we need to get done? And on the qualitative side, it impacts something called culture, organizational culture right? Sloppiness and making and managing promises has people getting frustrated. They get resentful, right? So there's both a productivity, a quantitative measure, impact, a result on how we do the commitment dance. And there's an equally important qualitative dimension, right? This notion of organizational culture. In fact, I make this claim. It's widely known that a company's culture influences how people work together, right? That, that, causality, that a company's culture influences the way people in that company work together. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just asked you to repeat it again because, again, my experience with business owners, they're like, what? What, uh, what do you mean company culture? What, what do you mean? How's, how's, how's my mood affect the rest of the company? What are you talking about? It's, it's, it's amazing. And this, this, this causality, right, what I've learned to do in this work, it's not only true that a company's culture does impact how people work together in that company. It's equally true that by improving how they work together, you can shape the culture. By improving how people coordinate action, make and manage promises, you can shape the culture. By doing something tangible, and folks, these tools, right? Making and managing commitments, elements of effective requests, valid responses, responsible complaints, by giving people a shared vocabulary, and a shared toolkit, something very concrete, very tangible, you can shape something very intangible, especially if that intangible something is your version of a culture of healthy accountability. Because these kinds of hard tools will help you create that soft, so to speak, outcome. But it's that two-way causality, it's that two-way causality that I never, I never learned until I was immersed in this work. I always knew that culture does impact execution and how people work together. But what I didn't know is that by improving how people work together, you can shape the culture. Exactly, exactly. So what, what kind of solutions do you use? What kind of solutions will address those concerns, will fix those problems? A great many leaders I work with, underneath a lot of things they want, they want an improvement in accountability. They want, they want an improvement in what? Accountability. Accountability, right? yeah. Oh, wow. Right in healthy accountability. I mean, virtually every every business leader I've worked with, in some way, shape, or form, they are looking to either improve accountability or sustain it. Right, if they already have it, 
And to me, unless we're talking about the level of tools, a shared vocabulary, like, like we're talking about here, right? When I work with organizations, we talk explicitly about the organization can be understood as a network of commitments, first and foremost. Given that the organization itself is a network of interdependent commitments, well, the front end of a commitment is a request or an offer. That's how you get a commitment. Somebody makes a request or an offer. I ask people in my workshops, by show of hands, how many people here today make requests at work? Every hand goes up, right? Every hand goes up. Everybody makes requests at work. However, not all requests are created equal. Some requests are very effective at laying a foundation for excellent collaborative execution and a culture of healthy accountability. And other requests are terrible at that. So we get specific, Carrie. we get very specific about what are the elements of an effective request. And as you know, we're talking about committed speaker, committed listener, future action and conditions of satisfaction, time frame, context, and mood. And on the valid responses, we're talking about not all responses are equally helpful either in terms of collaborative execution, right? right. Maybe, maybe it's not a very powerful response I'll do my best is not a powerful, a yeah, blank try. stare. I'll try. What does, what does Yoda say about try? <laughs> there is no try. Yeah, there is do or do not. There is do or do not. So imagine, right, the company itself is made up of a bunch of interconnected commitments. And, and as a leader, you allow a whole lot of people to end conversations, requests by saying, I'll try. Let me get back to you on that. I'm going to do my best and multiply that across all the interconnected interactions that are driving the company and all the results are bad. Carrie, in my experience, in, if, if people are looking for help and accountability, if you're not getting to the level of a shared toolkit, a shared vocabulary, new distinctions that are shared, if you're not getting to that level, talking about accountability is just motherhood and apple pie and it's just platitudes. Right. We got to give people some tools. And so in my workshops, we get very, very specific about tools about, and again, these are conversational competencies. And as we know, right, one of the powerful things about language is this, with language, we make visible that which was previously invisible, that we see with our eyes, but we observe through our distinctions, right? You give me, right, you give me new distinctions in the domain of effective requests valid responses. And I'm going to see what I didn't see before. I'm now going to see people making ineffective requests. Mm -hmm. I'm going to see people leaving the conversation without a valid response. And now because I see what I didn't see before, I can do what I couldn't do before, which is intervene productively, help people with tools. And these are the nuts and bolts, Carrie. To me, this is the nuts and bolts, the blocking and tackling of collaborative execution. I can, like I tell people, I can go down no further than this. Once we're talking about elements of effective requests and valid responses, I can go down no further than this. You can either do this well, or you can do this poorly, but you can't not do it. Right. And I offer, I offer people, and you're doing a version of this right now, right? If your company has more than one person in it, you're already doing this commitment dance some right. way or another. Carrie, right. do you remember a commercial, a company on TV, they made oil filters. The company was yeah. called Bram. 
I remember the company because I remember the commercials, which would always end the same way, right? A crusty mechanic looks up from a car motor, which had blown because the foolish customer had not been using fram oil filters. And the mechanic ends the commercial by looking the camera square in the face and saying, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. Paying me now, I offer, is getting these distinctions now, elements of effective requests, valid responses, responsible complaints. Paying me now is having a little bit of rigor, a little bit of discipline on the front end and the back end of making a workplace commitment. Paying me later, I believe, is sloppiness and unclarity, right, as we're making these commitments and then that commitment isn't in isolation. No, it's part of a network of interdependent commitments with upstream and now downstream implications of that uncertainty or sloppiness. And accountability in that is much more difficult. Yeah. Much more difficult on the back end. So I say, people, let's pay me now. Let's yeah. pay me now, which means let's get some distinctions. Let's get a shared set of tools. And let's bring a little bit of rigor, a little bit of rigor to this everyday dance called making and managing commitments. Yeah. Yeah. The back, the back end is just, there's so much mess to clean up. <laughs> and usually by then within the organization, there's a certain amount of resentment and resignation between the players about, you know, he did this to me and she did that and they were mean to me and I got my feelings hurt not in the messiness of it all and the sloppiness, it's messy. the, the, the it, really, you know, ineffective communications and people get blamed when things go wrong. So by the time you get to that end, it's like, how do you clean all that up without having to, you know, put a diaper on everybody and put in a bed or something? You know, I, I believe this. If you're ever brought in, if I'm ever brought in as a third party to help people resolve a problem or resolve a conflict, I believe one of the very first things we could say that could be very productive is this. All right, look, guys, before we start, are we here right now because of a broken commitment or their perception of a broken commitment? Is that why we're here right now? Ultimately, that somebody around this table thinks that somebody else around this table either didn't keep or didn't manage a commitment. Is that why we're here? And my experience is if we start here, we can cut through 15 minutes of unproductive, unnecessary conversation. Because you know, Carrie, one of the best distinctions I ever got taught is this. A promise broken is not at all the same thing as a silent expectation unmet. Oh, yeah. Those are not the same thing. There's an expression someone said, half the promises that people say were never kept were never made. Yep. <laughs> Yep. Right. Unspoken so, expectations. How does in every relationship? It's it, it, like I tell people, look, if you're in a long-term relationship, this distinction will serve you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <Yeah. laughs> I believe this, Carrie, I believe there are thousands, if not millions of people right now walking around offended. Yeah. And you, and you know why they're offended is because somebody in their life didn't magically fulfill their unspoken expectations, and now they are offended. Right. One of the best definitions that I ever heard for resentment is this. Resentment is that which arises when you fail to honor a request I never made. <laughs> yeah. And there's too many resentful people walking around. We got to keep these separate. We got to keep expectations separate from commitments. Yeah, exactly. That's great. The other thing I want to talk to you about is what is your 
I don't want to say your definition, but what is it you say as leadership? Or what do you see when you see a leader or leadership being demonstrated? What, what do you point to? What are the distinctions you say? That's it. You know, that's a great question. And, and there's so many different definitions, right, of leadership. So I don't have one that's my canned, the one that I always use. But, it, but I always come back to it's the ability to create a space where people work together for a common objective, right? And they work together effectively, right? It's, it's, it's fostering an environment where people can work together most productively and bring their best selves to work. I have increasingly begun to think that the creation and stewardship of culture is one of the most foundational things leaders need to be about. This capacity for creating and sustaining organizational culture as the basis for the performance that the team can, can achieve. And so for me, I'm, I'm all of the work that I've done outside of strictly speaking to Vistage groups, almost all the work I do inside companies, one aspect of it is to help the leadership team more purposefully shape the culture in the way that they choose, right? The purposeful creation of organizational culture. And of course, to do that building, that culture building, we don't need hammers and nails. It's a metaphor, right? We need different types of conversations, right. new distinctions, right? New distinctions around this area. And so for me, it, it's that, right? Leadership has to do with the, the successful creation and sustaining of an atmosphere or a culture in which people can work together effectively and build momentum effectively and work toward a common goal. That's interesting because I put a poll on LinkedIn last week and I asked, you know, business owners said, what are the, what is the most reoccurring problem you see in your business? And it was like cash flow, employee performance, production delays, government, government regulation. 80% yep. said employee performance. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and I have a subsequent poll going on right now that asked, you know, what do you attribute? You know, my last poll was about this. 80% said employee performance is the most biggest recurring problem. What do you attribute employee performance or lacking in lack of employee performance to? And one of the things I forget all the distinctions is like poor training, uh, poor job description, lack yeah. of motivation and uh, lack of coordination between departments. Right now the leading answer is lack of motivation. It's like, yeah, they, they don't give a rat's ass. They don't care. They're not no. motivated. Carrie, there's a couple of things, right? Number one, when we talk about employee performance, it's always, in, in my experience, it's not performance in a vacuum. It's right. performance as part of the team, right? So by right. definition, by definition, we're, we're not talking about individual uh, action. We're talking about coordinated action as part of a larger whole. So by definition, there's a collaborative aspect to virtually all of this, right? And in motivation, you know, there's this notion intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, right? What actually motivates human beings? There's a powerful model out there called self-determination theory. And imagine a triangle, and these guys are very well known. I think that the author's last name is D-E-C-I. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. But imagine a triangle. It's got three sides. One of them is autonomy. Another one is competence. And the other one is relatedness, right? Autonomy, competence, and relatedness. Hmm. And the way leaders work with that, right? Understanding that most people, once you get past a certain dollar amount, right? Money is not that big of a motivator in, in this sense, right? We have to eat, we have to have shelter, but there's this, most people, huge numbers of people are intrinsically motivated. And so by understanding that part of the job of leadership is 
I'm, that these three aspects we get to shape right, in the workplace environment. How much autonomy do you give people? How motivated am I, am I gonna be if I work for you? And you're right over my shoulder every second, micromanaging, 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 right? This right. notion of competency, right? do, am I competent to do the thing I'm supposed to do? And so in some ways, training may absolutely be an issue, right? To give, give people competence. The garage mechanic doesn't have the same competencies as a good garage manager, right? These are different competencies. And relatedness, right? What's the way that we relate to each other at work? We're squarely in the domain of, of conversations, right? What are the conversations that leadership requires? What are the conversations that leadership prohibits? Are there any missing conversations? in the organization, right? Yeah. How do we relate to each other? Because we know most relationships are not physical, they're not sexual, they are conversational, right? right? What, are the, right what are the conversations that are being held? And so to me, those three dimensions are important, right? This notion of autonomy, competence, and relatedness all come into play as I think about performance. Right, yeah, I, I, I guess what I find interesting is like, the vast majority of people are like employment performance, just they're not motivated. They're not motivated. Like no thought of maybe it's a culture that's here. Right. <laughs> maybe it's like coming to jail every day. <laughs> of course, of course. What's that? You know, beatings will continue till morale improves, right? Exactly. And exactly. so I believe this organizations are perfectly set up to achieve the results they achieve. Yeah. Right. Whatever results you're achieving, rest assured. You are set up perfectly to achieve those results. Keep, keep on getting that. <laughs> so keep on getting that, right? And so the notion, my least favorite, of course, I never even actually end up working in these, in these client situations, but I've had, not very many, but I've had over my career a couple times where a leader would earnestly look at me and say, Chalmers, I really need you to come in here with my organization. I said, that's great. Let's talk about it. He said, you know, I need you to come fix my people. <laughs> you know? I can't tell you how many times. I, I, I wouldn't be hundreds, but I've heard that more times than you would think. Yeah, I need you to come and, in and fix all these idiots. <laughs> and, so, and so it's as if they don't have anything to do with it, right? Right. It's as if they're not part of the system. They're not part of the mechanism. They're not part of the interaction that has it be like it is. Right. Right. And so I... I ultimately never end up working in those environments because by the time we finish talking, it's clear either he or she doesn't want to work with me or has a sense that working with me is going to involve some actual learning on their part. And that's, you know, but so, it, it so. depends on how much of their ego is involved. Oh, of course. Can, can they, can they like, oh, wait, it is me. It's not them. It's me. I, I need speak, to. Speak yeah. of that, you, you know, a Jim Collins, right? Who wrote Good to Great, Built to Last, these powerful leadership books talks about what he calls a level five leader, right? Someone that has, that has achieved success sustainably over time in a, in a powerful way has two characteristics, Gary. One, strong commitment, firm commitment and ambition to the common good, to the common goal, and humility. Mm. Humility, right? Yeah. This interesting combination of extreme commitment, extreme ambition, and open to learning, knowing that they don't know it all. And think how powerful that combination is. That's right? pretty powerful. Yeah, you know, there's once, a, you, once, you, once you know, like I'll know all this, no learning happens after that. You may have heard this expression, right? It's not so much what you don't know that gets you into trouble, it's what you do know that just ain't so. 
right? Right. So, so it's this, it's this, it's this capacity, right? It's this capacity. And again, power of language. When we declare, I don't know, right? We're not describing a state of affairs as much as we're creating something. What we're creating is a context or an opening for learning, right? Not physical, but it's real, yeah. right? Not physical, exactly. but it's real. Exactly. And there's a lot of research out there. There's a lot of research. There's another powerful book out there called The Culture Code. Right? The author's name is Daniel Coyle. Mm -hmm. And Kerry, he looks at organizations as diverse as the San Antonio Spurs, SEAL Team 6, IDO, Pixar, right? And one of the things he talks about that they have in common is at the leadership level, this capacity for vulnerability, right? This, this capacity for authentically acknowledging areas in which they don't know, authentically acknowledging things that they didn't do. In fact, the SEAL Team 6 guy says that one of the most powerful sets of four words he ever heard in his career is, as a leader, I screwed that up, right? Wow. And that this capacity, when you see a leader doing that, that also has this strong commitment to the common good, it's a powerful avenue for, we're going to get real around here. We're going to have real conversations with each other and right. find out what's really going on because it's these missing conversations, Carrie, right? It's these missing conversations or conversations held without authenticity that get in our way, right? That, that, that slow things down that seem to be the stumbling blocks for a lot of organizations. And, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's rethinking what we think vulnerability is or authenticity is, you know, Brene Brown's out there in a big way talking about the power of vulnerability. And there's a lot of people are clear that whether we call it vulnerability, authenticity, getting real, whatever we call it, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's being authentic and genuine in the conversation in such a way that you and I can be genuine in the conversation, end up with different perspectives, but not making each other wrong, right? This capacity to separate being truthful is not the same as claiming to have the truth, right? Right. Right. And it's it, it's that space, right? And and in those in those kind of spaces, people have meaningful conversations, yeah. and things things get done. Yeah. Things. Then you can done. act like human beings rather than I'm the owner. Yes. You're, you're one of my payroll liabilities. <laughs> that's wonderful, and that's precisely what. And in almost all these organizations that are are profiled in that book. They have a conversation after something happens. I think in the SEALs, it's called an AAR, an after action review, right? But different companies have different names for it. And in those conversations, the way you said this kind of triggered it, there's no rank, hmm. right? In those conversations, we're all here, part of a team, and we all get the same equal say on what happened, what should have happened that didn't, what did happen that shouldn't have, what, what are the things that we're gonna do differently next time, what are the things that we're going to keep the same next time, right? But those kind of conversations require, I think, authenticity, and they require the ability to not have a real hierarchical structure in the room where I'm deferring to your authority to such a degree that I'm not being real. I'm not being authentic. Right, right. Yeah. When you speak from that, you know, this is my, I'm speaking from this position, not from who I am. That's right. There's, there's not a whole that's not a whole lot of room to like respond to that or question it or kind of like what's coming out of there. It's like here's 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 the truth, and why aren't you in line with it? 
You know? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's start here. Let's start here. I'm right. I know that. So let's just have that as a given. I'm right. And then you're different than me. So you must be wrong. Wrong. <laughs> of course. Right. And clearly, you know, clearly uh, a very different vibe, a very different norm is established. Right. Right. These are very different norms established. I get my hand slapped one time for being authentic in these kind of conversations, and I'm going to be hesitant. Yeah, I'm going to be hesitant about sharing what I think is really going on next time. And and those kind of missing conversations, carry. I mean, that bucket. I use this bucket a lot. Are there missing conversations in this organization? Are there missing conversations in onboarding? Are there missing conversations in post? Do you, you get a lot of puzzled looks, like what the hell are you talking about? Once we, once we get into it, I say, y'all, this is a friendly phrase. Missing conversations is a friendly phrase. If you want a short, informal way as a leader or a supervisor or a manager to help your team identify areas that may need to be a priority item, write the phrase missing conversations on a flip chart with a question mark and simply open a conversation with smart people who work with you. So guys, are there missing conversations in your world, meaning conversations that have not been happening. But if they were, you say good things would happen. And these could be conversations you yourself aren't having but need to be having. They can be conversations that you just think, you know what, every time we make a sale, I thought you, Jim, were talking to Anita about X. I mean, that's not happening? Well, let's talk about it. Would it be good if it was happening, right? So this notion of if we understand the organization as a network of conversations, right? If we look through that lens and right. if leaders can be understood as conversational architects, right? And conversational engines, then this kind of conversation is in our wheelhouse. Are there conversations we need to be designing given the results we say we want, right? Always with that in the background, given the results we say we want. Always, always, always. And you can't come from, uh, I already know all this. You can't come from, there are no hidden conversations. Everything we speak about, I, I bring it up. <laughs> no, that is not. I mean, because everybody has a good BS detector and that BS detector goes off immediately upon someone saying that. Yeah. Virtually 99.9% .9 people I've ever worked with, we, we have a good BS detector and we're not the only ones. The people we're working with have a good BS detector as well, right? And once that starts going off, it's a whole different vibe. Yeah. A whole yeah. different background. Yeah, you, you shut down a lot of, shut down a lot of everything, like good ideas, conversations, willingness to pitch in. I mean, one of the, my experience, one of the best ways to know if you're, quote, a leader is look behind you. You have anybody following you? Right, right. right. Employees are not, quote, following you necessarily. You know, they, they may be there for a paycheck, but they ain't following you. Anyway. No, they're not. They're not. You said something, too, about shutting down ideas, right? Oh, yeah. There's the power of diversity, right? The power of having different types of people, different types of thinkers, different types of human beings in the room. Mm -hmm. None of that value is obtained if you as a leader come in there thinking that you know everything already, right? So you just, you just miss a gigantic opportunity to tap into right? All of the intelligence, creativity in the room. You know, one of the things I think that's most essential that what leaders do is leaders elicit creativity, right? Leaders, I mean, think about it. leaders elicit creativity. 
Ah, I mean, good ah. leaders, right? Good leaders, and again, create a space, not physical, but real. They create a space in which creativity can be let. One of my friends, his name is Sean Flaherty, and I think he's a brilliant guy. He works for a company called ITX up in Rochester. I've learned a lot from this guy. And one of the things he says is that creativity is the only inexhaustible resource we have. Hmm. Had right? it that it, way. It's the only inexhaustible resource that we have. And leader's job, one of them, is to tap into that or create a space where that can be brought forth. And those kind of skills are not functional. They are not technical skills. These are conversational, relational, and emotional competencies that yeah. are required to create that. Right. Yeah, I, and I'm guessing you're probably familiar with Simon Sinek. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One, of, one of the things I love to hear him talk about is that leaders always speak last. You know, yeah. talking about this. Because, you know, if you come in, you're the, you're the head of the thing, you sit down with all your people and say, okay, here's the problem, this is the way I see it, this is what I think we ought to do, what's your idea? Well, right. you just shut down the entire room for the most part. I mean, you exactly. might get somebody to chirp and say, oh, yeah, that's a great idea, boss. Right. But if you say this is the problem, I'm not sure what's going on, who wants to contribute, that's a whole different context of conversation to happen rather than, I mean, what you say, and this is, I think we need to solve it, what's something to say? No, I think, I think you're full of it. It is, Gary, and, and I like the way you said that because you said the word context, right? Yeah. Leaders create context. What is the context for this conversation, right? What kind of conversation are we going to have, right? What do we want the outcome, right? Again, leaders produce results through conversations. What is the result we want this particular conversation to have? Are we having a conversation for speculation, right? Are we having a conversation for navigation where we're comparing actual versus plan, right? Are we having a conversation for alignment? in which we understand our purpose, our values, our goals, our direction, right? right? What kind of conversation are we having? And this this ability to, on the very front end, and again, this is Simon Sinek as well, right? What's the why, right? The power of why, yeah. right? What, oh, is, yeah. what is the why of the conversation? And once we have that clear, then the why of the conversation, if it is to get input from everybody, and as you say, solve a problem, then me going first as a leader, making clear my already determined answer or solution is not going to be conducive to the sort of actual no. genuine you know creativity again creativity that we need right yeah you, you just stomp on that pretty hard right again no context right every conversation has a context it's just is it purposely created or not right right yeah okay good so the the next thing i was going to talk to you about is is eq or emotional intelligence I know that's right. something that you've worked with a lot, I and mean, I'm guessing you've worked with businesses and business owners, business leaders with that. And this kind of, I'm trying to remember where I first started hearing about EQ. I think it was back in the early 90s, like nearly 30 years ago. And I know that it's, it's kind of mainstream now, but what's, what's your take on, on EQ these days? I think it's absolutely spectacularly powerful and required. And we do not need to be psychologists to be effective leaders but we can't be emotionally illiterate, right. right? Right. So we don't need to be a PhD in psychology, but for me, Carrie, it was two books. It was Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he introduced something called the emotional bank account. Mm -hmm. And you may recall, it's this emotional bank account in which you and I have a relationship. We interact with each other. And in the process of these interactions unfolding over time, I am in some ways making emotional deposits and in some ways making emotional withdrawals, right? Meaning based on how I treat you, 
how right. we interact with each other. And it is possible to overdraw the account, right? Which means I make one emotional withdrawal too many and our relationship now shifts yeah. from what it was to this new thing. It's almost always diminished. It's almost always less authentic. It's less close, right? All these things. And then Daniel Goleman, who you're right, I think was in the 90s with emotional intelligence, right? And his work has been widely acclaimed. And it's the first book I think I ever saw that pointed to the bottom line impact of these soft skills, right? The relational, emotional, and conversational competencies as having a direct impact on the bottom line of organizations. And so the largest program that I do right now inside companies is called my SOAR program. S-O-A-R stands oh, yeah, for success, yeah. right? Success through observer action results, right? The observer action result model, right? And clearly, uh, I think right now module four is emotional intelligence and trust, right? In my, in my program. So I build a, a whole half day program around it because I think it's so important, right? This capacity to understand our own emotions, right? right. To understand, to, to understand that each of us is a unique observer, right? We're not robots, but we're unique human beings. And the human being that we are is composed of these three separate, but clearly interdependent domains, which are our language, internal and external conversations, our moods and emotions and our physical bodies. Right, And that these three in you, in me, in everybody listening, these three are constantly interacting and being interacted on by each other. Right, And this is our way of being. Right, Our particular way of being is constituted by our unique combination of these three. So we are already linguistic beings. We are already biological beings. And we are already emotional beings. Already. Right. And the emotional state, right? Our emotions, as we know, serve as dramatic influencers on how we see things, right? Dramatically impact how we interpret, dramatically predispose us towards certain future actions and away from others, right? And it's this notion, right? That emotions have to do with predispositions for action that clearly a team in resentment <laughs> is a, in a very different place than a team that's operating in ambition. Right. Right. In terms of how they interpret situations as an opportunity or a catastrophe, right, as a setback or a learning opportunity. Right. And it's out of the interpretations we form that we take action and the actions, of course, produce results. But the moods and emotions serve as dramatic impactors of how we interpret, dramatically shaping our their, therefore future actions and, and results. So it's it's central to me, Carrie, and, and it's we're not the only ones having this conversation. It has been widely acknowledged with the people I work with, widely acknowledged that something like emotional learning, emotional intelligence, something like that is needed, especially for leadership and management. No right. doubt. So, so I guess my question is, is you see it getting, do you see it firmly embedded in corporate America or even small and mid-sized businesses, or is it still lacking a lot because it's the, I guess yeah. what I'm saying is, it, yes, it makes sense and, and what have you. And at the same time, if you, were, if you were brought up and all of your inputs, societal, family, everything else, religion, have you be a, I mean, here's the thing with the ontology of language. Once you, can, once you can be the observer of the observer, it's still difficult to intervene on the automatic 
you know, automatic interpretation, prejudice, everything else that have you react and, and be a certain way or act a certain way. So without having that, being able to observe the observer that you are, not being able to see yourself in action, you it's know, hard. How, how, how do you develop, how do you improve, how do you practice that emotional intelligence? Kerry, I start every single program I do. And number one, by the time we get to moods and emotions with my clients in my SOAR program, we're four months in, right? Right. And I've had one-to-ones one, one with them in between, and we've already covered some basic uh, distinctions. But every program, I start the exact same way with a metaphor. It's a big eye in the sky looking at a stick person. It's you taking a look at you. And under, this is self-awareness, right? And under everything else I do in my work, and I think a lot of people that do this sort of work, we focus strongly on self-awareness as a starting point for any purposeful, meaningful change. Right. This capacity, as you say, to see ourselves in action, and even more than that, this capacity to take a look at how we look at things, right? To understand that we each do look at things a certain way, and this capacity to begin to look at that instead of only living through it. Right. This capacity to make what used to be subject to now the object of our attention, right? Taking a look at it, but it's, it's crucial. And you're right. My experience is this with moods and emotions, especially, even if you see yourself in a certain mood, well, number one, I was taught that I think something like 30, 32 or 36% of your basic mood or vibe, you didn't get to choose. You were born again. You didn't get to choose. It's part of your DNA. Oh, yeah. It's your genetic, it's your genetic heritage and your biological predisposition that comes from your mom and dad and comes from your family and come. It is simply again that body circle, that yeah. those those three circles, mood, body, language. That body circle is real, right? And there's a certain hardwired aspect to each of us. I got three kids, and they are radically different from each other, right? <laughs> And they were different from each other before my wife and I got our hands on them, right? They, they were different beings, right? right. In, from the womb, they're different. And we're all that way, right? So there's a certain aspect that's just hardwired. And this is the old, in some ways, right? This is the nature-nurture conversation, right. right? So even though, yes, I have a set point, I have a biological, genetically built-in way that I kind of come at things, I also have, it's both and, it's not either or, I also have a huge chunk of my way of being that apparently is up for design, right? That I do get to actually influence. And each of those three, mood, body, language, can be the leverage point, can be the starting point. It's not just that I have different interpretations out of different moods, which I do. I can also shape those moods by purposefully coming up with different interpretations, right? I can walk a different way. And if I keep it up over time, my mood's going to shift, right? And my interpretations. But Carrie, the gigantic, big, big barrier for any of us who are seeking to purposely design our own moods, you better get ready to address the I'm right conversation. <laughs> because once you start, once you start to design out of resentment and into something else, I'm right, but I'm right. I'm right. Look at what he did. I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. And so, but you don't. Yeah, if, but you don't see. You're not. You're not listening. You don't get you don't it. See, you don't see. You don't see. And so it's this notion, right, that even though cognitively we want, we say we want to shift out of this mood, right? Dealing with the "I'm right" conversation, 
it, it's going to it's going to come up. There's a powerful book out there, Carrie, called Immunity to Change, right? And it's this powerful, powerful thing whereby, and the author's name is Keegan and Leahy, and they're strong, but it's very closely tied to what we're talking about here. They have people identify a, a goal. What's a goal that you want to achieve in your life? Write it down, right? I want to be a better listener, right? I want to be more open to other people's ideas as a leader, whatever the case may be. Then in the second column, what are the behaviors that you're either doing or not doing that are taking you away from that, right? Well, I interrupt too much or I, you know, what are you doing or not doing that seems to be inconsistent with that? And here's a kicker. In the third column, they write down, what are your private commitments that are underneath these behaviors, right? So it's in column number one, what, what are the commitments that you have? Column number three, what are the commitments that have you? Yeah. So, all right. So how, how easy is it for people to see that, the commitments that have them? Well, that, that's the work, right? And it's this notion of, again, big I, right? I tell people in, in my programs, I am not committed to keeping you comfortable in this workshop. <laughs> I, that is not my commitment. I'm not. I'm committed to help you learn and help you grow, right? There's the term out there called the learning edge, right? What is your learning edge, right? And for a lot of us, it's, as you say, with ontology, right? This capacity to look at how we look at things, right? Which means to look at how you interpret things, to look at the underlying beliefs and assumptions and stories that we've made up about how things are, right? Hold them to be the truth and forgot that we made them up. And it's that looking at these, these private commitments that we don't really see as private commitments, right? These are the, this is where the work is, right? It's, it's this, this capacity to see why I say earnestly, I really wanna make this change. I really, really, right now, I, if you had a lie detector test, I am 100% positive. I am committed to making this change, right? I'm still doing these actions. So what is underneath? And for a lot of us, it's from a leadership standpoint, I wanna be the hero. I'm committed to being the problem solver. I'm committed to being the guy. I'm committed to, to having people like me, right. respect me, right? And I have an assumption, right, that's underneath this, that if I don't do that, they won't respect me. And it's this interesting, but I love the title, right? Each of us has an immune system. And Which in many ways, we have an immune system. Oh, immune system, and, change, right? Yeah. Right, so it's called immunity to change. So it's this perfect... I got my foot on the brake and the gas pedal at the same time. Yep. Right? Yeah. But, it's, but it's saying the same thing, right? It's the big eye is turned on enough that I can begin to look at some of these previously unexamined uh, interpretations. But those unexamined interpretations are underneath, right? These actions that are contradicting what I publicly and cognitively am aware that I want to do. Right. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, and I'm thinking here, anybody who's watching this, how would they go implement this in their business without a coach, without all of the same? I don't, I don't see this happening. I really don't. I mean, because the, the conversations, especially, let's just, let's just assume the person watching, the average person here that's like late 40s to early 50s, mid 50s, what have you. By the time you're that age, the conversations that you've lived by, the, the, the thoughts, the prejudices, the judgments, the values, the stuff, they have you. You don't have them because 
you've never really examined them for them. I mean, they'd be the very, yeah. very rare exception. But for the most part, you've never examined any of that stuff. You just think that's reality rather than that's just some belief system, you know, part of my belief system that I've been programmed with growing up. So <clears throat> I guess my conundrum is, is this is not something, while it's a noble cause to go back in your business and you want to make this kind of change, I don't know how you're going to do it successfully without a good coach. I think you need a good coach, Karen. I think in this kind of work, this is not like um, a coach or a consultant for a technical fix. Right. Right. Technical fix. I mean, there's a distinction. Are we dealing with a technical problem or an adaptive challenge? Mm -hmm. A technical problem can be solved with a manual. A technical problem can be solved with more clarity and instructions and step by step by step. Look at a lot of internet. (laughs) Yes, yes. A lot of what we're talking about here are adaptive challenges, right? They are. They they require us to adapt. That's why they're called adaptive challenges. And when when we say they require us to adapt, that it means we have to begin to look at things that previously we looked through, right? We have to somehow, and so now we're talking about the development part of leadership development. We're talking about do human beings actually develop in mental cognitive complexity as we get older? And you know what the data says now? Absolutely we do up until you're 80 or 90 years old. You know what the data used to suggest? What people used to think? Imagine x-axis is emotional or or cognitive intellectual complexity. Y-axis is time, right? You got a 45 degree angle. As time goes by, you're getting more complex. Uh, Obviously a five-year-old and a 10-year-old are radically different in terms of their complexity, right? A five-year-old on top of the Empire State Building would say, look at the little cars, and they think they're actually little. Right. A 10-year-old would say the cars look small, but he knows they're big, right? And that's that's a different... He equates it with distance rather than the size of the car. Exactly, right. And so he's developed cognitively in a clear way. They used to think that that development progressed through adolescence up to about 21. And then for the rest of your life, the line was flat. Hmm. Right, that you basically stayed at the same level of mental complexity. And now that they've identified, Carrie, for you and me and all of us, we absolutely do continue to grow and change over time. Right. Thankfully. They've identified <laughs> thankfully, right? And so we're not just we're not just getting older physically, right? We are growing and deepening our level of, of complexity. Now we don't it doesn't all happen at the same time, at the same speed in different ways, right? But the neuroscience, something called neuroplasticity, right, that we, we do develop. There is a, and there's science behind it. We do develop different levels of mental complexity. And the ability to do what you're talking about, the ability to look at what you historically have only looked through, does represent a level of mental development, cognitive development, com- com- internal, com- internal complexity, right? that is required to be able to do that. But it's a developmental step. Right. It's, 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 you know, it's not a technical fix. It's a developmental step that, that we have to take. If we want, if we want and, and I believe this, a great many things we're dealing with now, we're dealing with interdependency and the ability to deal with interdependency and nonlinear causality, right? Requires us to be able to think 
at a level that's more complex than, you know, than pool ball, a ball hits ball and cause and effect. Like we gotta, we gotta, we, it's required that we be able to think in, in more complex ways, I believe. Yeah, too many variables, too many, too much of what we call the soft skills involved. Yeah. I know. Fascinating conversation, man. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about today? You know, Kerry, I don't think so. I mean, I've, you know, everything that I learned starting with education for living and ultimately up through Newfield and now has to do with this shift in perspective that really changed my life, right? This notion that language itself has a generative and creative dimension, that we speak ourselves into the world, yeah. right? In a meaningful way, we speak ourselves into the world. And it's this notion that our internal conversations are equally as creative as our external ones, right? The conversations I live in about who I am, right? Any kind of I am statement, right? You find yourself saying anything that starts with I am, get ready for the universe to start getting creative because that is a powerful, powerful statement. And it's gonna shape how you interpret stuff yeah. right? that hasn't happened yet. One of the tools I use, and I didn't make this up, somebody taught me this, but it has to do with this power of language, right? This notion. Imagine these four declarations, these four statements. I am dot, dot, dot. Life is dot, dot, dot. Other people are dot, dot, dot. And in the end, comma, dot, 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 right? Life is, I am, mm. other people are, and in the end. Imagine, do you think right now the way that you complete those declarations has anything to do with how you inhabit the world. This is a personal philosophy, right? Yeah, this is oh, a yeah. personal, you know, this is a, and I make this plain, we have a personal philosophy, whether we, whether we th think we do or not. Yeah, whether you're aware of it or not, whether you believe whether it, or, it or, not, or not, you got one. And you got one. And think about this. Think how you would actually complete those now. Now, here it is, Carrie. Think how you would have completed those when you were 18. Oh my God. Right. And think how different. So this notion, now we can see the power of language. Now we can see we're not human beings. We are human becomings. Yeah. I like right? that. And, and the way we become manifests itself in primary declarations like this. I remember in education for living, right? We had to finish up with a primary declaration. Right. I still remember mine. I am an honest, loving, understanding, and contributing man. Right. And that statement, that declaration has stuck with me. And it's a powerful, still, you know, presence in my life in terms of what I aspire to, how I aspire to be as I do what I do. And so right. I just want to reinforce that everything you and I are talking about is resting on this notion, this interpretation that, yes, we do describe and communicate with language, but that's not all that we do. That's and learning something small. about this, yes. Learning something about this, not all that we do side of language is where the, where the action is, is where the life is, is where the movement is, is, is where the, the impact is, is where the growth is. And so, and that's what, that's what both of my books are about, right? Language in the Pursuit of Happiness was my first book in 2005. And as you know, Carrie was directly influenced by Education for Living and Newfield. And Language in the Pursuit of Leadership Excellence came out in 2015. And as the title implies, it's, it's a slight shifting, kind of refocusing the same key distinctions, 
on the world of leadership and, and organizations. Right. And so as it turns out, right, who knew that going to that one workshop in 1987 would be the catalyst for an entire shift in my career and my life. And so I'm, I'm so grateful that I was able to go and somehow I found myself in the right place at the right time to learn some things that not only did I need to learn at that time, but that I have found to be uh, life affirming and so beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm grateful that you got that, that, that training because we wouldn't have the book without it. <laughs> I'm serious, man. Your, your book is fantastic. It is a go-to it's, you don't have to be a genius. You don't have to have a college degree to read it. And it's just, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty laid out. Like, can, yeah, can you appreciate interpret it. that? Yeah, it's been, like I said, I've given it out, I've recommended tons and tons. I've, I've given out probably 20 copies at least. Oh, um, thank you. I, I, I do think as I've, as I've gotten older now in this work, I do think that one of my contributions to this work is the way I package it, right? Is the way I frame it, right? Is, is the, way I, the way I put it together so that hopefully large numbers of people that don't have a lot of this background, they can still understand it and apply it in their lives. Right. Cool. Strategic planning. Overrated, underrated. It, it's taken a hit, right? Back in the day, back in the day, it was a big thing. I think historically, I think right now, it's probably viewed somewhat dismissively. I think part of it because the ability to form a 20 year plan in a, in a what's called a VUCA world, right? Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, right? The ability to have long-term plans that actually have some semblance of being able to predict the future enough to be valid is very difficult. But I think companies are obviously still actively planning in the one to five-year range, for sure, right? Wanting to make sure that they take care of, what, of what's coming and anticipate what's up. And so I think the... In, in my world, these are called conversations for alignment, right? We need conversations for alignment in some way, shape, or form. What is our core purpose, right? What are the values we operate by, right? What are the goals we have for ourselves? I do think there's something powerful about a big, hairy, aspirational goal, right? You know, the ability to kind of put a, a North Star out there that says, you know what? In five years, we're going to be X, or 10 years, we're going to be X, or 20 years, right? So all this to say, I think conversations for alignment are important. I think traditional strategic planning, as it was taught to me in MBA school, right, has gotten kind of squashed, and I think rightfully so. In many cases, those ended up in binders on shelves, and they weren't actually used to guide the organization. I think to the extent that- How, how do you think it led to that? They wound up as binders on shelves. Was there no base commitment to it in the beginning or was people weren't trained to maintain their focus on the, the long range goal that's or? A, that's a great question, Gary. I mean, I, I, I don't know if they thought while they were doing it that it was gonna be a waste of time. I don't think so, right? I think they thought that they were spending, you know, cause these took valuable time and effort and money and all that, right, away from work, usually off sites and all this, right, to, to come up with it. So I think they're, I think they, they thought they were valuable. I just don't know that they had the, the, maybe the conversational, relational and emotional competencies to implement consistently, right, to actually yeah. translate it from something on paper to something that we live, you know, every day. But that's a great question. That's yeah, great no, question. I mean, my perspective is, is that people, you have to, 
you have to have a change in your perspective of thinking long range to begin with. Otherwise, it's kind of an exercise that, yeah, it turns into just a binder on a shelf. And after a while, yeah, you're too busy with the alligators, you know, clean the swamp, clean the alligators out of the swamp. So you remember right. that the ultimate goal is to turn it into a whatever, a resort or a neighborhood or whatever. So if you're not, if you're, if you're, if you haven't trained yourself or you haven't adapted to the longer term perspective and keeping that as a primary focus, like thinking right. long range every day, because like some cultures, Japanese do it. America, we don't. We tend to think quarter by quarter, especially in the big corporate world. Of so course. strategic planning sounds good. You come up with all these fancy plans and stuff, but if it's not in your, if you don't alter your discourse, your perspective to think long range first you're not gonna you know right. don't waste your time and if you don't have the rigor right to build it into right to build it into your meeting cadence right however you meet whether it's daily weekly monthly quarterly right if you don't have the the rigor to keep those milestones to keep those objectives right you know to be able to compare actual versus planned right and, and also to make changes, right? Because what you declared was, was a, a primary goal two years ago, things may have dramatically changed, right? So the ability to, to, to modify on the fly, right, is clearly important. But unless you do have some kind of rigor, some sort of meeting discipline, some sort of conversational discipline that are these going to be talked about, right? Are the values that we declared going to be integrated into performance management? Right. So are we going to have a values based performance management process where we incent and disincent employee behavior in a way that is consistent with the values that we declared last year are most important. Right. Are we going to incent or disincent employee behavior based on the goals that you know, is the performance cycle, the conversations people have where the rubber hits the road at the supervisory to employee level are those conversations based on the goals and objectives that we've declared to be important. And, yeah. and, and so maybe it's as, maybe Carrie, it's as simple as that there wasn't that amount of rigor, right? That they weren't right. able to sustain that sort of rigor in the in the forthcoming conversations. Yeah, it takes it takes a lot of commitment. You gotta you gotta constantly re up to it because it's not addressing why sales were short last month. It's not addressing why you've got a cash right. flow problem. It's not addressing why you've got some you know you put your employee performances off or whatever. Right? You're going through a divorce right. or whatever right. you know, all that kind of immediate stuff it's eh, i'll get to it later and it never gets gotten to i know you're so, right anyway okay corporate let me see corporate culture you know there's a lot of talk about corporate culture and i, I guess what's the word i'm talking about? it's not so much as corporate culture overrated or underrated but i guess the emphasis of corporate corporate culture i'm not sure what i'm trying to say here but I guess, so what's your take on corporate culture? I think it is possibly the most important aspect of organizational. Okay. I so think it is a, I think it is a foundational leadership priority needs to be. And that the way that, because what we're talking about here are the, is the context in which the organization operates. To me, another word for corporate culture, what's the corporate context? So what you're right? saying is that it's, it's pretty well underrated. I think it may be underrated. And again, my experience, and, and maybe I, I have a, a skewed sample size, right? But virtually all the companies I work with, they understand corporate culture is important. 
and they understand that one of the reasons I'm there is to help them with it. Now, again, it's a self-selected audience, right? Because if they're working with me, they already have some inclination, right? That they, that they need some help in this area. They know what I'm about in some ways. And so I never maybe get on the radar screen of people that completely dismiss it and don't think it's important. But I do think if you look, if you look at leadership conversations, if you had a round table leadership conversation uh, 50 years ago, it would be very different than a round table conversation about effective leadership here today. Right, right? oh yeah. Because very different. So there has been a sea change, Kerry, a sea change in my experience with the people I work with in leaders awareness and appreciation that something called organizational culture does exist anyway, whether you purposefully create it or not. It simply exists as a byproduct of the shared learning and shared experiences of the people there. It does exist. Yeah. And that part of the job and that, and that that culture does impact, right? The ability of the team to accomplish hard objectives. Right. Primarily because the culture is dealing with relationships and relatedness and the organization is composed of people and almost all the collab, almost all the execution that has to happen, that has to happen inside an organization, almost all that execution is collaborative execution. Right. right. And so to me, it's, it's a central component of what is it like to work together? Do we work together in an honest, forthright way? Right. Do we trust each other? Because if we don't have trust, then we're going to have waste because I don't trust you to do it. So I'm gonna go back behind your back and create another, a back channel process to do it. Right. Trust is impacted, productivity is impacted. Do we actually find the root of the problem or am I so intimidated by the leader that even though I think I, I know what it is, I don't say anything because it looks like he's already got the answer he wants. Right. And yeah. all of those, in, right, all of those interactions, Carrie, all those interactions are shaped by culture. True. All right. Final question. Would sure. you rather be smart or would you rather be lucky? Huh. Good question. Probably lucky, I think. I mean, I, 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 smart, I mean, I know a lot of smart people that don't seem very satisfied, you know, <laughs> they're, they're cognitively very smart. And the way you said lucky, the word lucky implies that a person who's lucky kind of has a lot of moments of like, gratitude right because i get this oh wow you know like this that things just seem to happen and when they happen i get this emotional kind of enjoyment out of it so i'd rather be both but i but i think if i have to choose i i, I think i think i'll go with lucky yeah my personal preference is lucky and again it's one of those the harder i work the luckier i get oh, I like and that. and I like yes that. and i know a ton of smart people that you know, barely out of their mother's basements. You know, they're, they're know. a step or two away from living in their, in their, living back with their parents, what have you. And they're, they're brilliant, but there's some disconnection with. Carrie, the way you said that, you're exactly right. In fact, in fact, my entire career in some sense is based on being lucky. I mean, I've That's because you worked that, hard. And I, you I worked hard. I worked hard and I studied and if Laurie and Henry hadn't invited us to go to that first workshop, if we didn't know them, right, right, if I'd never heard of that, of education for living, right, if I'd never heard of that, my entire life would be different. 
And, and so in some ways I was lucky that we went and once I was there, I saw something and it resonated with me and I went for it and I grabbed it and I ran with it. Right. But just getting there, you know, it, it um, the thing, if you, if you had been like smart, like high IQ, you've been like, man, eh, you might've been dismissive at all. Carrie, I tried that when they were asking me to go to the workshop. Here's my thought. Number one, I'm not even sure what a workshop is. Number two, I'm pretty sure I don't need one. And number three, <laughs> number three, if I, <laughs> I've said that to myself. And number three, if I haven't heard of this organization already, how good can it be? Right. <laughs> you know what ultimately happened? They right. ultimately said, look, look, Chalmers, look, look, look. We will pay for you and Betsy to go. And if you don't think it's worth it, don't pay us back. Wow. And that good got friends. Good, good friends. friends. And we were so fortunate and lucky and grateful for that. Yeah. You know, I mean it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Excellent, cool, man. All right. Well, listen, why don't you tell everybody, you know, what it is you do to help them, their companies, whatever, sure. and how they can get in touch with you. And I make sure we have a, a you know, whatever, contact Chalmers board at the end of the video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. I work with leaders and teams, carry to help people be, be more, more productive and to be more effective. I help people build stronger relationships and work collaboratively better. I help people purposely shape the sort of corporate culture that they say is most conducive to the, to the results that they want. I help people get unstuck in a lot of ways. Right? I help people see some things about themselves that they haven't seen before. I really do focus on self-awareness. I mean, I help people become much more self-aware. I believe that once you stretch the self-awareness balloon, once you start seeing things about yourself, once you start acknowledging and noticing that you're not just reading these in internal interpretations, you wrote them. Once right. you start, once you see that, you can't pretend you don't right. anymore, right? You can't go back to the way it was before. So I help people, I wanna say I help people grow. I help people grow, help people develop. A lot of my work does have to do with improving relationships, workplace and personal. It does have to do with helping people become more emotionally intelligent, right? More productive at work. And I think I help people become better leaders. I give people some tools and competencies and distinctions that armed with these distinctions, they can be much more effective as, as leaders at whatever level they are. And okay. to get in touch with me, right? My email is info, I-N-F-O at chalmersbrothers.com. My website, of course, is www.chalmersbrothers.com. My TED talk is out there. If you Google Chalmers Brothers TED, it'll pop up. It's a fantastic, 14 minute. Fantastic TED talk. Oh, I thank thought. you, Carrie. Yeah, it, man. It was, it's a I, short I, I version. Posted, I posted on LinkedIn several times over the years. It's like, yeah, you need to watch this. I appreciate that. Thank you. Since COVID hit, I actually have nine or 10, 45 to 90 minute videos on I the virtual program on my that. website. And they're free. And so you, you can, they're, they're free. You can check them out. At some point, I'm going to do something with them in an, in an offering. But for right now, they're all free. And so they're 45 to 90 minutes each, and they cover virtually every topic in the book. And so if you're compelled and interested and intrigued by what Carrie and I have been talking about and want to go deeper and obviously get the books and also look at the videos and, and see what they do. So I would love yeah. to hear from any of you at any time. I mean, to be a resource for you. Yeah, fantastic, man. Fantastic. Well, listen, Chalmers, it's been an honor and a pleasure. Fantastic conversation today. I'm, I'm thrilled. We're going to have to do this again. Because uh, there's so you, much Karen. we didn't get to even touch on, right? I know, I know. It's, it's wonderful seeing you again after all these years, man. It's uh, it's fantastic. Just, here. just getting older. 
<laughs> I know, man. <laughs> anyway, so listen, man, thanks. And uh, I appreciate you being on the podcast. And we'll talk to you You're later. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. See you. Thank you.